The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. If you have just stepped in and you weren't here last week, we're in a small little mini-series, two-week series on a healthy church. What are the qualities of a healthy church? And just briefly, I want to go over the points that I made last week. I said that a healthy church blends sound doctrine with real life. So we're not just intellectually interested in good doctrine or sound doctrine or the truth, but rather we also are taking that truth into our lives and wanting to incorporate it in that truth into our lives and obey the Word of God. So a healthy church blends sound doctrine with real life, but it's also populated with godly older men. And we really look to the older men and their character and their perseverance in their dignity, in their soundness and faith and love, we look to them to set the example of how to walk with the Lord. But it also, and just as importantly, a healthy church prioritizes female discipleship. Women discipling women, older women discipling younger, younger women and teaching them how to love their husbands and to love their children, to, to keep their home. Women prioritizing the discipleship of other ladies in the church, whether you are single or whether you are married, but it is a priority in a healthy church. And just as much as we need the men to walk in godliness, so we need the women to walk in godliness and then to teach the next generation that same walk with the Lord. And then it's also filled with mature young men. The church should be countercultural in that sense. It should be filled with men, young men who are not caught in the trappings of immaturity, but that are actually standing out in relation to other young men in the culture with their maturity and their soundness of mind and their self-control reigning in their appetites. And then we ended by saying that a healthy church is led by godly shepherds, led by godly shepherds. And uh, these shepherds are to be people, men who are preaching with integrity. What they teach in one place is the same thing they teach in another place. They are teaching the Word of God. They are teaching the historic Christian faith. They're not deviating into heresy. But they're also careful to integrate their life with what they teach. Though we are not perfect, we don't want to have major gaps in our life where what we teach is totally different than how we live. And so we're to be models of good works as well, whole Shepherds, not just those who only teach, but also whose lives are filled with good works and caring for the saints in other places. To show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. And here's something that Paul has already brought up, and he's going to bring it up again here, and he's going to bring it up again in the next section. He says, So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Paul is deeply concerned about the public witness of the church in Titus 2. He's not only concerned about the internal health of the church, but how that health will radiate so that people will see it and take notice. There's something different going on here in this church. He is concerned about the public witness. He even says it up here in verse 6. I'm sorry, in verse 5, speaking to the women, the women are to disciple the, the, the younger ladies in such a way that the word of God may not be reviled. Reviled by whom? Likely reviled by unbelievers looking in. Give them no basis for their accusation. And again, he says it about the pastor. Pastors, pastors in such a way so that our opponents have nothing evil to say about us. And I don't think Paul means that they'll never say anything evil about us. In fact, we just yesterday, my little group going to evangelize, the first door we knock on, things are going just swimmingly, right, with this person actually. We're, he's opening the door. He's talking to us. It's going well. And so nothing, prob- nothing 
wrong with the person we're talking to. He's actually open to, to engaging with us. He's keeping his door open and the conversation's going well. Well, all of a sudden we get this gentleman walking behind us yelling at the person, the homeowner, saying, shut the door. All they're telling you is nonsense. Just shut the door. Just shut the door. And then he kept walking. And so I, we just turned and said, sir, just judge for yourself whether these things are true. And we, we moved on our way. But so we weren't doing anything wrong. We were, we were keeping a good conscience. We were doing what was right. We were treating people with respect. But that didn't keep us from being accused. Nevertheless, that accusation should never find any ground or any basis. And that's Paul's point here. We are to live and conduct ourselves in such a way that the accusations never actually land because they're never actually true. And this public witness is vital because God's glory radiates from the local church. Local churches are kingdom outposts. That's what they are. God's put his little kingdom outposts all throughout the world, not just in America, but all throughout the world. Local churches are beacons of his glory, you might say. Philip, uh, Ephesians 3, 20 through 21 makes this clear. God's glory is in the church. It's currently on display in his church. The church is the only place on earth where you can behold the God of the universe making himself known through a community of saved image bearers. Is God real? What is God like? A large part of that answer should be look at his church. Look at the church. We should have a serious concern about the public witness of the church because God's glory is at stake. We want people to be able to see who God is, what he is like, what he has done. We want people to behold the glory of his holiness and his grace radiating from the church. We should never want an opponent of Christianity to have a legitimate accusation against Creekside Bible Church. Paul was concerned that healthy churches would have a, and here we come to the next point in our study, that he is concerned that churches will have a righteous public witness. A righteous public witness. So a healthy church has a righteous public witness. That's in verses 8b and through verse 10. Let's look at it here. Now, you could even add to that point that the healthy church has a righteous public witness in the workplace, because that's exactly what he's going to talk about now. What kind of witness does the church have as the individual members now finger out into the community, into the places where they work. He's going to address this very thing right here. Verse 9, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are, not, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, the contract system that we are used to today is different than the slave system that was in Paul's day. We, we know that. It was two different systems. But in both systems, there is a similarity that, that connects them both. There's an authority structure between the worker and the one who oversees the work. The bondservant or slave was under the authority of their master. An employee, though free to move from one job to the next, one employer to the next, if he desires is nevertheless under the authority of that employer while he is working there at that job. And the employee labors according to the wishes of the employer, not the other way around. We all know how this works, right? We're all under authority in one way or another in our jobs. 
Therefore, Paul's exhortation here in this passage to bondservants or to slaves has direct connection and application to our situation today. We can easily apply this to employees, employers. So that's, it's not a leap at all. It, because that authority structure is in place in both cases, the contract system and the slave system, we can apply this directly to our current situation. So how are Christian men and women to pursue their work in the marketplace? What does it look like for a church to have a righteous public witness in the marketplace or in the workplace? The first step is to submit to your employers in everything. Submit to your masters in everything. Submit, to, submit yourself to your manager or the one who is over, has direct oversight of your work. God has so structured the world that these orders or these structures of authority and submission are vital to the well-being of our society, to public safety, to productivity, to the flow of commerce. If you remove these authority structures, what you have is chaos and anarchy, which is actually kind of ironic when people pr try to promote these kinds of systems, these kind of anarchy systems, saying we're just going to remove all leadership because you know what happens when you remove all leadership? Someone or some group eventually rises to leadership. It's inevitable. It has to happen because that's the way God has structured the universe. Actually, authority is a good thing. Now, authority has been abused, but that's no argument against legitimate authority. God has placed it in our lives. He's structured the, the world in this way so that there is a, uh, leaders and there are those who follow their leadership and they submit to that leadership and so on. And Paul is comprehensive in his exhortation here. He says, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. In everything. Now, that is quite the statement. We know it's not an absolute statement because we know that Paul and the other apostles at times would uh, refuse to submit to uh, some authority because that instruction from the authority went against the very word of God on, with regard to the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, or even an ethical question. So this submission is not a submission to unjust rules or to instructions that if followed would lead you to disobey God and his word. That's not what Paul's saying here, so it's not utterly absolute. But we have, given that caveat, we have to reckon with how comprehensive Paul is here. He says, in everything, the Christian should be the heart of the Christian should be one of submissiveness to legitimate authorities. Because submission to lesser authorities reflects submission to the highest authority, namely God Himself. A Christian shouldn't be characterized by a constant and steady and unabating resistance to legitimate authorities. Actually, that kind of stubbornness is a good sign of spiritual unhealth. The call in this text is for employees to willingly fulfill what his or her employer gives them to do. At basic, that's what Paul is calling us to. Do what your employer gave you to do. An employee should respect the authority structure and should labor to fulfill their job description, to complete assignments and projects with joy and a good attitude. Now, you could complete all of your assignments with a humph and a, and a grumble, but that wouldn't glorify God, and that wouldn't bless your employer, and that wouldn't bless your fellow employees or the company, ultimately. That's why Paul says, he follows that up, that, that statement to be submissive to their own masters in everything, they are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. That's right there in the text. That's why he follows up that statement 
Probably because he knows we're gonna, we might bristle under that, be submissive in everything. Well, okay, I'll do it, but only with a humph and a grumble. No, you're to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. A Christian shouldn't be known as the one who's constantly resisting overtly or covertly their employer's instructions. That should not be the witness of the, the church. That should not be the witness of the individual Christians as they are out in the community. But let's talk for a minute about this phrase, well-pleasing. This is not a call to be a man-pleaser. It's two different things, well-pleasing and man-pleaser. What's the difference? A man-pleaser tries to win the approval of their employer for their personal benefit. That benefit may be a promotion, it may be praise or affection, or some other social or personal advantage. That's what a man-pleaser does. They labor and try to do good to the employer so they will immediately get something in return. A man-pleasing employee is one who pleases their employer to get something back. To be well-pleasing, as Paul instructs employees to do, servants to do, may look at times the same on the outside as the man-pleaser. It may look at the same because you're both trying to please the employer. So you'd have the well-pleasing Christian and the man-pleaser. It might occasionally look the same on the outside. But the one who is well-pleasing is doing their work to bless their employer regardless of what benefits might accrue from their work. The orientation of the man-pleaser is self. The orientation of the well-pleasing employee is the, is the benefit of the employer and by extension, the benefit of the company and the fellow employees. That's what it means to be well-pleasing. You're not being a man-pleaser, you're glorifying God by seeking the benefit of that employer who is in charge of you. And ultimately, also that company and the fellow employees. A Godward employee who enhances the church's public witness is also, here he says, not pilfering. Now, we just don't use this word too often. When's the last time in this week? Did you use this word this week? <laughs> don't pilfer. Okay. If you did... Then let's talk afterwards. I, I'll give you a free book. I mean, you're, if you use the word pilfer this week, then we just don't use this word, this word very often, do we? What does it mean? What does it mean? A pilferer is an employee who uses what has been entrusted to him for his own benefit rather than the benefit of the employer. It's theft. Pilfering is theft. Here's, here's the idea, though. It is subtle, careful, easily justifiable kind of theft. That's what pilfering is. It's the kind of theft that happens when an employer assigns money or other resources to an employee to use wisely for the employer and the company's benefit. But where the employee takes a little bit or a lot, depending on how clever and sly they are, they take those resources that have been entrusted to them for the benefit of the company, for their own personal benefit. And now padding an expense account with personal luxuries that have little to do with one's actual responsibilities at work is one example of pilfering, and people are doing it all the time. Christians should not be doing it. I once heard a story, a true story, this is a true story, verifiable, uh, of an employee of a, a major company who took... And overseas, so he was at a meeting overseas, and he took he needed to, to get a flight back. And there are some things that, that happened that made it kind of a, a quick turnaround. So he had to get a flight back to the States. He chose to fly first class. 
Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with this, and I'm sure that there are companies that allow their executives and other high-level employees to use first class, okay? This particular one-way ticket cost nearly, I believe it was over, at least I know this, it was over $13,000 one way. And now, this company was strong financially, right? This wasn't going to end the business, but the leaders of this company recognized that this was extremely wasteful and unnecessary. This was a form of pilfering, okay? Christians should not be guilty of this kind of thing. Another example of pilfering that, that probably will more readily apply to some of us is laziness at work. This is a form of pilfering. This is a form of theft. And our theft when we are lazy at work is doubly bad. And this is how it's doubly bad. It's doubly bad because you're taking money from your employer that is not commensurate with the actual work that you've put in. So that's theft. So you're stealing in that sense. But then you're not producing as much as you should and therefore keeping your employer and the company from making as much as they could. And therefore you are stealing in that sense. It's called pilfering. And Christian employees should never be guilty of such laziness at work. Listen to how Proverbs 18.9 characterizes laziness. We don't think it's a big deal. It's a really big deal, biblically speaking. Quote, Proverbs 18.9, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. The lazy person is compared to the one who's vandalizing because both of them, one overtly and one covertly, but both of them are destroying the company. Why? Because your laziness, you're secretly and quietly tearing down the company that you work through, work for through this subtle kind of Theft. And remember that I mentioned that this is easily justifiable theft. That's why we have to guard against pilfering, because these are things that we, we might be able to easily justify. But what I don't mean is that they're actually justifiable before God. You might persuade yourself that it doesn't matter to do some of these things because you work for a multi-billion dollar company with a high net positive cash flow. And you're just like, come on, man, it's not a big deal. Really? That might have been the attitude of this man who took a $13,000 one-way ticket to back to the States. But the commandment here is independent of the size or solvency of a given company, isn't it? It doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with the church's public witness. It has to do with the glory of Christ. It has to do with God's reputation in the places that you are working. That's what it has to do with. What matters is this public witness and a professing Christian who secretly sloughs a little off the top of the resources entrusted to him for personal benefit is tarnishing that public witness. And sometimes it's made public and it's a huge blight on Christ's church and on Christ's reputation. Instead of pilfering, a, a Christian employee should show all good faith. Now this phrase good faith doesn't refer to his Christian faith per se. It has to do with his trustworthiness. Show himself to be trustworthy. Can the employer trust you with his resources? Can he trust you to use those resources for the benefit of the company? And there's nothing wrong for him to expect that. He has 
made the, if he's uh, uh, the, the sole proprietor or the owner of the company, he has made the sacrifices to even bring about that company. But get it, why, why make such concerted effort? Why make such effort in the workplace to guard ourselves from things that we couldn't even kind of justify? Here it is. This is what he's been getting after in these passages. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Our life, our integrity, the way we conduct ourselves, our hard work at work, our life in the home, they are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, which is just another way of saying adorn the gospel or to adorn the word of God. Now, the word of God and the gospel has power inherently already in it. Our adorning it and our lifestyle, lifestyle is not what saves people. Our godliness is not what saves people. But in God's design, it's the case that our lifestyle, our life, our obedience to the Lord serves to beautify, you might say, this doctrine of the gospel for other people to see so that they'll see our lives, they'll see that there's something different there, they'll see that there's a a powerful integrity there and they'll wake up and take notice and they'll recognize that it's flowing from this beautiful and glorious gospel. That's the point. Point is, uh, Paul's been making this point since uh, chapter 1, verse 16. Sound Christian doctrine will be viewed, viewed as merely theoretical or just another religion to outsiders if it isn't adorned with godly character and conduct. In God's design, our godliness does serve a role in displaying the reality of the gospel. Our character and conduct, particularly in the workplace, is of vital importance for the church's public witness and the glory of God. But now Paul's going to take a turn in verse 11. And he's going to root us where we need to be. He's going to root us in the grace of God. There's only one source for all of this health. What we've been talking about is church health. What does a healthy church look like? Well, it cannot be disconnected from, here it is, the grace of God. A healthy church is rooted in the grace of God. That's verses 11 and 12. 11 and 12. A, church is, a healthy church is rooted in the grace of God. And it can only be healthy if it's rooted here. A church can only be healthy if it's rooted in the rich, nourishing, life-giving soil of God's grace. Christianity is not a mere religion. This is not a few points to help a group of people get along better that just about anybody could follow if they wanted to. No, Christianity is the revelation of God's saving grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you're here today, and this is the first time you've heard of any of these things, Scripture does not allow you to walk away and think, mm, that's a nice religion. No, you must walk away being convinced that this is the truth. This is God. This is the revelation of God's saving grace in the world. And notice how Paul defines the grace of God here. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. It's a person and a message Foundationally, Grace is not an abstract theological concept. It's not some sort of metaphysical substance that emanates from God. Grace is fundamentally and first a person and a message. That's why he says the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has tangibly broken into our experience through the birth, life, death, 
and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation has come to all. And this all people doesn't mean that all people will be saved, but that there's no distinctions among those who can, those who can receive the gospel when they hear it. No one is excluded from salvation on the basis of ethnicity, social status, education, lifestyle, religious background, and so on. All who hear the gospel are welcome. The grace of God has appeared to bringing salvation to all people. But we can, as we focus on grace being a person, we can also define it this way. Grace is God's free, lavish, and unconditional favor upon people who deserve only his wrath. That's what grace is. It's pure favor that, is, that finds no merit or warrant in the actual person. It's not based on who you are or what you've done or failed to do. It is by God's pleasure. It's undeserved because we are rebels from birth. We're rebels. Whether we are quietly rebellious or whether we are overtly rebellious. We are rebels from birth. Our hearts are set against a holy God from birth. And these lead to sin against God and his law and other image bearers in dreadful ways. And we see these things being carried out, but they are carried out by us as well, not just people out there. And this rebellion deserves God's holy judgment. This is the first important part of the gospel, recognizing that we sin against a holy God. And not only that, we are entrenched in sin. We are dead in sin. We can't raise ourselves to life. What work will we do to raise our dead hearts to life? What work will we do to atone for this grievous sin that we commit day after day after day after day? If God is going to save us, it must be by pure, undiluted, unmixed, uncoerced, unconditional, free grace. God's free favor upon those who deserve only his wrath. That's the grace of God. So then enter the Lord Jesus Christ in his gospel, right? Salvation has appeared. It's here. God sent his son into the world to fulfill perfectly everything that God requires of a human. And then not only that, then he goes to the cross to bear the punishment that we deserve. And not only that, then he's raised from the dead into newness of life so that those who are united with him will now have newness of life, united to him, forgiven of all of their sins, and destined for eternal life with God himself. Notice how Paul describes the saving grace just a little further in the, uh, chapter 3. He says in verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out us on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so, Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Notice how Paul qualifies things here. He's very careful to qualify things because you might be thinking, well, maybe God looked down the quarters of time and he saw the good things that I do when I, be, when I would become a Christian and that's why he saved me because he saw all my potential. No, not even close. Pure grace. He saved us not on the basis of righteous works but according to his own mercy. And then notice this part in verse seven. He says that we're justified by his grace. Paul doesn't mention faith anywhere in here. Now, we know that 
we're saved by faith alone. That's the way that you come into a relationship with God is by faith in Christ alone, not any reliance upon your works. But salvation is so of God that he would say here that we are justified by his grace. Ultimately, you're justified by God's grace so that even your faith is a gift of God's grace. Isn't that incredible? So this grace that we are talking about, this is what roots our healthiness. This is what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world. This remarkable grace of God to save a people purely by his own pleasure that has nothing to do with works that they had completed before or after their salvation. For grace to be grace, it must be free, unmixed with anything we do before or after our salvation. But we could err this way. We could err by saying this. Use some kind of logic, kind of jumping from a biblical statement to an, Ill, uh, an illogical conclusion. You might be, some have thought like this and even wrote like this. To be saved by grace means that I am saved apart from my, any works that I might do. That's true. Therefore, I don't need to be concerned about my works or obedience in my life because I am saved by grace. That's not biblical logic. That's human logic jumping from a uh, statement in Scripture that is true, that we're saved by grace apart from works, to the illogical conclusion to say, well, then I don't need to worry about any works or any obedience at all. That's not where Scripture leads us. Paul actually corrects that kind of logic by saying this, that grace has, it appeared, it is great, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ is not stagnant, it's not impotent, it's transformative. God's grace does something to us. That's good news. I don't want to be the same person tomorrow that I am today. I want to have some sort of change. I don't want to be a million years from now in eternity the same person. I want to be changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I want there to be a transformation in me. I want to be delivered from this sin, don't you? Now, we're never fully delivered from it in this life, and we look forward to glorification. But to suggest that grace is something impotent that doesn't change us now is to misunderstand grace. That's what Paul's saying. Grace trains us. Grace trains us to move in a particular direction in our life from ungodliness to godliness to a lack of dignity to dignity, from disobedience to obedience. This is what grace does. It's a good gift to be trained to renounce what dishonors God and what destroys our souls. I don't want to be left to myself so that tomorrow I'm left to sin that dishonors God and sin that destroys my soul. God gives us grace that changes us. It transforms us. So let's actually go back to Titus 2 and read it in light of this. How would we read Titus 2 having rooted it now in verse 11? You could say it like this. But as for you, Titus, by grace, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are, by grace, to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Older women, likewise, by grace, are to be reverent in their behavior. And therefore, by grace, train the younger women, that by grace they will love their husbands and children. Likewise, younger men are to, by grace, be self-controlled. 
Pastors, by grace, are to be a model of good works and show integrity in their teaching. Employees, by grace, are to show all good faith in their work environments and to submit to their employers and serve them well. The instructions of the Christian life cannot be disconnected from the grace of God, and the grace of God cannot be disconnected from the life it is meant to produce. So a healthy church has a good reputation with outsiders. It is rooted in God's grace fundamentally. I mean, this is where we we cannot drift. This is why we constantly are preaching the gospel week in and week out because we need to be reminded where we are rooted. We are rooted in God's grace, but it is a grace that changes us, a grace that transforms us, a grace that gradually is forming us more and more into the image of Christ. That's really what sanctification is. It's not too complicated. God is just gradually forming us more and more into the image of Christ. And for some of us, some areas are harder than others, but God is doing this work. Grace trains. A healthy church also longs for Christ's second coming, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the hope of the believer. This is the heartbeat of the Christian life. But subjectively, in our own lives, it can only be our hope and our passion if uh, the grace of God is actually in place. That's why we just spent a good amount of time on that and why we are constantly reminding you of the grace of God. Because we, when we see Jesus, or I'm sorry, when we are assured of our justification and our right standing with God and it's purely by God's grace, then we will see Christ as a lovely and gentle and kind Savior. When we are unassured of these things, then we will fear his condemnation. So part of expecting uh, an eager ex- in, uh, expectation, anticipation of Jesus' coming is to being well acquainted with and solid on this truth that we are saved by God's grace alone so that we don't sense any kind of condemnation from our heavenly Father. But also, just as uh, it coincides with what, what else Paul is saying here, is we also need to be walking in a good conscience because we're being trained by grace to obey the Lord Jesus. A person walking in obedience to Jesus can't wait for Jesus to get here. Their conscience is clear. They're walking with the Lord. They are saved by grace, yes, but they're also walking in correspondence with the truth that God has laid out in his word, and therefore their conscience affirms their life, and they don't have to fear uh, for Christ's coming as 1 John Says, And of course, this requires us that we are regularly what? Regularly confessing our sin and repenting because we so often fall short. So we must confess and we must have our consciences cleansed on a regular basis and then step back into that obeying the Lord. A right understanding of our justification by grace and obedient walk with Christ will bolster and boost our hope subjectively in Christ's second coming. If you don't have a hope, a hearty hope for Christ's second coming, one of these two areas is lacking. Either there is a deficient grasp and embrace of justification by faith and uh, grace alone, or there is a resistance to the word of God in walking in obedience so that your conscience is bothered and so that you're feeling some some, uh, condemnation from your heavenly Father so that you're not eagerly anticipating the coming of the Lord Jesus. So you can say that 
Longing for Jesus' coming is a good indicator of an individual and a corporate church's spiritual health because it indicates that a Christian and a church has a solid grasp on justification by grace and is seeking to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. Not perfectly. Not at all perfectly. And needing that regular cleansing of confession before God and that regular confession and repentance before others, but nevertheless walking in obedience. And then finally... A healthy church zealously pursues good works. Zealously pursues good works. Notice what Paul says here. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. We're longing for it. We're looking forward to it. Who is he? And what did he do? Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Not people merely engaged in good works. There's a lot of people out there engaged in good works. Jesus died for the express purpose that his people would be zealous. The word for zeal here means a kind of boiling over. This is passion. Jesus Christ died. He suffered on that cross for the express purpose of creating a people who are boiling over with a passion for good works. That's why Jesus died. That's what Paul says here. To redeem your life from lawlessness, to make you passionate for good works. And as we already saw, Paul has already done this with Titus. He distinguishes good works from teaching. That means that merely teaching the word of God to others is is not sufficient to fulfill our calling to be zealous for good works. We're never to set aside the teaching of God's word. But our zeal for good works is meant, as we last saw, to adorn that teaching so that the the word of God that we bring is also adorned by a life that is characterized by passion for good works. Paul is so deeply concerned about this issue of good works that in this tiny little letter, I mean, Titus is just, it's a tiny little letter. You could read it right now in the next two minutes, be done with it, right? No, I don't, don't do that because then you won't listen to what I have to say, but, but you could do that and just be done with it very quickly. It's a short little letter. He mentions the issue of good works six times in this little letter. He is deeply concerned about it. And so is the New Testament. Here's just a sampling. This is a sampling. I could give you many more verses, but here's a sampling about what the New Testament has to say about good works. Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you and then so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. 1 Timothy 6, 18, referring to the, the wealthy in the congregation. They are not to trust in their riches. Rather, they are to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Hebrews 10, 24, Why should we get together on a regular basis and not neglect the fellowship? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's just a sampling. There are so many passages that speak to this very thing in Scripture. But what kind of good works are we to be all about? Because it's possible to get passionate and excited and to actually veer off in a way that's not in accordance with God's Word and not ultimately helpful. We want to make sure that the good works we're doing are good and pleasing to God because it's possible, I think, to engage in something that we think is a good work but actually isn't. First, we have to say, like we've already said, 
good works that are pleasing to God are grounded and rooted in grace. Just doing good things for people is no necessary indication that you're rooted in the grace of God. It affects the heart. It affects the motivation, doesn't it? It's rooted in grace. We're not doing good things to earn God's favor. We're doing, God, doing good things in, in serving people and loving people because we're so thankful to God and we're saved by grace and we don't have to try to establish and secure our salvation and we're thankful for the gift of salvation and we're thankful for the gift of life and we eagerly serve. Christian good works are to also be distinguished by their motive. Our good works are done for the glory of God, not to enhance our reputation. So much philanthropy these days is to enhance the reputation of the benefactor. That's not at all what we're to be about because we're grounded and rooted in God's grace. We want him to get the glory from our life. But finally, this is, this is important. When it comes to good works... We want to be obedient servants, not presumptuous helpers. We want to be obedient servants, not presumptuous helpers. What do I mean? Well, you can see this, I think, with young kids, okay? They have an impulse to help. Most kids, little kids, have an impulse to help. They want to help mommy. They want to help daddy. And it's, it's a good impulse, right? And they're willing to help, and they'll, they'll, they'll come and help, and it's like as they grow older, that becomes less and less, and you're wishing that you could go back to the younger times because they don't want to help as much, right? But when they're little, they really want to help. Often, however, their so-called help will cause you more work and headache. For example, let's say this little child gets the idea that they want to clean up dirt off the floor. They get the idea in the head that this is a dirty floor, point one. Point two, mommy would like a clean floor. Floor. Point three, I will help by cleaning that floor. Okay, well and good. Here we go. Little kid, on her own, thinking about this, I just said on her own. I'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus here. <laughs> on their own, goes and gets a towel wet and goes and starts cleaning up the dirty floor. About two minutes later, that's overshooting. About 30 seconds later, they get bored and they move along to something else. The mommy comes along, and now her workload has doubled because now she has a muddy floor and a dirty towel that she must clean. So the child, though, had a, having an impulse to do good, to help, their help doesn't lead to actually effective work getting done. That eager child just doubled their mommy's workload. You know what I'm talking about. Children are always helping and sometimes helpful. Amen? Well... When a child is unguided in how they should help, they actually end up not being helpful. That's why we tell our kids, don't try to be helpful. Ask how you can help, and then do whatever you've been told to do. And come to think of it, that's probably good advice for state and local governments, but we'll come to that for another time. <laughs> in the same way, regenerate Christians have an impulse to do good in the world. It, that is just a basic feature of the regenerate heart. I don't know why this is disputed today. I don't know why this is such a controversy today. The, to, the desire to do good to one's neighbor is a basic feature of the regenerate heart. Love has been instilled. Good works don't save us. Good works don't regenerate us. Good works don't atone for our sins. But good works flow from a justified, regenerate heart. 
There's a desire there to do some good in the world, to do some good to your neighbor, to care for others, to alleviate suffering, to share the gospel, and so on. But this good impulse can lead to problems and ineffectiveness and just flat-out disobedience if it's not guided by God's word. We want to be obedient service and not presumptuous helpers. Actually, actually, helpful people who aren't guided by God's word can be some of the most destructive people in the world. They want to help, but they don't give thought to God's word, to what is most effective, and they end up doing more harm than good. So we need to be careful here, don't we? How does Scripture define good works? I, I rarely have see this question asked. It's just kind of, we just kind of assume we know what good works are. How does Scripture define good works? Well, we have to be careful that we don't narrow this de- definition too strictly because Scripture often leaves it undefi- uh, slightly undefined, kind of vague at times when talking about good works. And why is that? Well, I think part of that is because in Ephesians 2.10, we're told that God has laid out good works for us to do. And these good works will often come in the course of just our normal lives. And so the good works that you do will be just as varied as your your background and your calling and your gifts and all of these things, and they'll be different from mine, right? So we can't narrow them too specifically so that, that we are not giving space for individuals and their individual gifts and callings. So I think that's one reason why Scripture does leave them relatively undefined in places. Nevertheless, Scripture tells us a lot about what these good works are to be that we're to be engaged in. Just looking at Titus, for example, when he's talking about good works, I think we can naturally uh, infer here that, for example, in Titus 1.8, hospitality is a good work of the, the elders are to be about. It's something for all Christians to be about, but he's addressing specifically the elders in Titus 1.8. The training of young women in the local congregation is a good work, Titus 2, 3, and 4. The young women's loving of her husband and her children and her work at home is a good work. That's Titus 2, 5, and 6. The faithful work that employees to do are to do for their employers is a good work. That's Titus 2, 9, and 10. And then meeting cases of urgent material need, 3, 14, is a good work. And then we move out from the book of Titus, and we find out, this is incredible, and I think it will be encouraging to a, uh, a few of our ladies Moving out from the book of Titus, we learn that good works happen in the course of home management and motherhood. Look at here in 1 Timothy 5. This is a remarkable passage in this regard. Paul is writing to Timothy, helping him to understand how he should care for older widows in the church. The meaning financially, how to honor them. How do you care for them financially? How are you to support them financially? Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return for their parents, to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Um, uh, verse, uh, verse 9 now. Uh, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years old. Okay, so there's a certain age range here. Uh, those who are younger, Paul would then later instruct to, to remarry if they're able to. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than six years old, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. What are those good works, Paul? Please define them for us. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. What were these good works that he was talking about specifically bringing up children, showing hospitality in her home, caring for the practical needs of other Christians, showing tangible mercy to the afflicted. These were good works. 
And I think this is such an encouraging passage for young mommies. Because maybe young mommies read this and they're like, I, I need to do good works. Uh, should I go to a soup kitchen? I mean, what do I do? When are you going to do that? When are you going to go to a soup kitchen? Well, you're, you're probably not going to. Good works, the good works that God has planned for you to do are right in front of you. They're right in front of you by God's grace. Isn't that, isn't that kind of the Lord? Rearing children is a good work. Changing diapers, wiping noses, laboring incessantly, it may seem, to provide food and clean clothing for your children and your household is a good work, according to Paul. Opening your home to fellow believers, that's a good work. Giving refuge to hurting people in your home, that's a good work. But here's also the blessing of this passage as well. You don't have to be married to do these things either. Opening up your home, caring for the saints in tangible ways, giving refuge and help to the afflicted, making your home a welcome sanctuary of rest and peace for troubled people. These are all good works. And this should encourage us. This encourages us because I, I just I, I get the feeling that when we think good works, we start looking around going, where are these good works that I'm supposed to be doing, right? Where are they at? In many ways... Most often, they are right in front of you. It's what God has placed already in your life to fulfill. Helping people with physical ailments is a good work. This is how um, Peter described Jesus' ministry. Acts 10, 37 and 38. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And then Jesus would go on in John 10, 32 to describe his healing ministry as good works. Caring for people's physical bodies and physical needs are good works. But here's the, the last place I want us to turn. Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We've already talked about this, but what do you do if your work is outside the home 40 to 60 hours a week? Well, we'll see here in Ephesians that your serving faithfully in your place of work is itself a good work. Does that, does that bring you some freedom? I hope it does. Look over here to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and following. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has established these good works. He's planned them from before the foundation of the world, before you were saved. He's got them all planned out. He's got them charted out. How is he going to get you to carry out these good works? Is he going to make you, give you an endless search, give you a treasure map, and go have you go look for them? No, he's going to lay them right out before you in your life. And one of the places is, as we've noticed, we've said it's in the home, but another place is in our place of work. Turn over now to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. He says this, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free, masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. This word translated good here is the same word in Ephesians 2.10. 
There are two Greek words in the New Testament that are translated good in reference to good works. One is agathos, that's what's used here. The other is kalos, and that's used also throughout the New Testament. They're basically synonymous. Kalos has connotations of beauty, and agathos has connotations of wholesomeness. And the phrase here, any, uh, whatever good anyone does, is just a, another way of saying a good works. Any good that anyone does. Paul's point is that the employee's diligent, faith-filled work for their employers, it's considered a good work. This should be freeing to many of us even today. We might go to work 60 hours a week and think that God doesn't really care about that. What he really cares about, the good works that I do when I come to church or when I go on a short-term mission trip or something like that. Actually, he's saying whatever good you do in the context of your work situation, God is going to bless. He will bless you with reward. This he will receive back from the Lord. Whatever good that good work that he has laid out before you, Ephesians 2.10, now you are fulfilling in your workplace. And then he says the same for the masters. Do the same to them, implying that there is good for the employers to do as well. You know, this was a really helpful thing for my dad years ago. He's been in auto repair business for 60 years. He's owned an auto repair business for over 60 years now. It's just remarkable. Done, 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 done well, and he's run a, a great business. But when he got saved... Uh, 20 or so years ago, over that, over 20 years ago, he wondered what he was supposed to do in terms of good works, right? And I am sure, I said, in my young converted state, you got you to gotta travel around the world and preach the gospel and feed the poor. That's, those are your good works that you got to do. And that was not encouraging, right? Because he didn't think that that was his gifting or calling. And as I matured in, the, in, in my own faith and as I was able to show him texts like this and talk about this, this doing good in the workplace, it really freed him up to see that this, his, his play, the primary, one of the primary places where he was going to do these good works was going to be in the workplace in his, as an employer, in the place where he provides a fair wage for his employees, something that James makes a big deal of in James 5.4. You've got to provide fair wages. He provides an excellent, clean, and safe work environment for his employees. He cares about them individually, even shares the gospel with some of them, and he cares individually for individual families. My brother-in-law is a manager of, uh, of the business, and he cares for individual employees' families. He even visited or even went to a, a funeral for a family of, that works for them because a, a relative had died. And I believe that these are works that are pleasing to God because they're coming from a heart of faith. They are coming from Christians who trust in the Lord, who are seeking to fulfill their calling in this particular area to, to uh, serve and bless and do good to others in the place where they've been called. And Paul distinguishes between good works and teaching earlier, but I do not think this means that teaching and evangelism are not good works in and of themselves. And the reason I say this is because G, uh, uh, Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work will complete it into the day of Christ Jesus. I believe the means by which that good work is brought about, namely teaching and evangelism, could themselves be also called a good work since they bring about the good work that God produces, namely regeneration in the life of the believer. Also in Luke 6.26, when we're called to love our enemies, we're instructed to do good to them and bless those who, who curse us, which would include, at the very least, a prayer for their salvation. So this is 
what we should now turn to Titus and we'll wrap up. This is the point that Paul is making here. The healthy church is, is the church where God is creating whole people, whole Christians, Christians who love in word and deed, Christians who care for the spiritual and the physical needs of people, Christians who love the body and the soul, Christians who care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering, as one theologian has aptly said. God is creating Christians who preach the gospel and who adorn that gospel with a beautiful array of good works that truly bless people. These good works can happen in the home. They can happen in the workplace. They can happen in greater society. They can happen in the church. They include raising children. They include managing a home. They include meeting physical needs. They include caring for afflicted people. They include working diligently in our jobs. They include caring for one's employees. They include opening our home or our apartment to others. They include caring for people's physical ailments. These are the good works that Christ died for us to pursue, to be zealous for, to demonstrate to a watching world that Jesus Christ is alive, that he is good, and that he changes people, that the gospel really does change people and transforms us from selfish, self-centered, indifferent, apathetic, rebellious sinners into worshiping, holy, others-focused, obedient servants. That's what people are to see in the power of the gospel as it's carried out in our individual lives. So let's just review um, these. I'm just going to read these uh, nine points and then we will close with prayer. A healthy church blends sound doctrine with real life. A healthy church is populated with godly older men. A godly church prioritizes female discipleship, is filled with mature young men, it's led by godly shepherds, it has a righteous public witness, it's rooted in God's grace, and it longs for Jesus' return, and it zealously pursues good works. May God grant us more and more health in CBC as we seek him and rely on his spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us a lot to chew on, to think about, help us absorb it into our spiritual bloodstream that we might think clearly, that we might apply it. God, we thank you so much for your goodness to us in these wonderful texts of Scripture. Help us to be zealous for good works, always rooted in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.